Welcome back to another episode of Sean and Ed's Do Baseball. I'm Sean. And I'm Ed's. We're doing the baseball. You it? We always stumble over that part lately. We, we never talk about it. We really should no, we be should more really professional should and coordinated. And speaking of professional, we have a professional here with us. Yeah, we're back for another episode with Matt Marchese. Welcome back, Matt. I don't know about professional, guys. I mean, I'm just that small-town kid that grew up in Little Nobleton, Ontario. I don't know about <laughs> professional. I, I don't think anybody's ever called me professional, especially in my own work environment. Nobody's ever called me professional. Your, your so work, I appreciate that. Your work environment is toxic, Matt. I'm saying, no, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, but, uh, no, you you were amazing. Uh, you could listen to Matt on uh, the Fan 590. Sometimes he's produced some amazing, amazing radio shows and worked with some of the legends of the industry. Uh, so we're very humbled to have Matt on the show. Uh, if you missed uh, the introduction with Matt on last episode on, uh, who was it? Len Konecki. Len Konecki. Check out that episode. Uh, it was fantastic. Uh, I get to tell one this time, Edzie. Yeah, I'm excited to hear about this one. Uh, before you get telling us the story, I guess we should tell the people to follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball and Instagram at Doing Baseball. That's for sure. Uh, give us a review, give us a rating. All of that helps. Uh, super excited. We're almost to episode 50. Yeah, we're getting close. It's been two, two more. Two years, two years that we've been doing this now. This is amazing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Matt, well, we'll give you a plug before we start here, too. Where can they find you? They can find me at MattyMar89. Check out some stuff on uh, uh, sportsnet.ca. And um, I guess when you're listening to the radio, just pray that you hear me because uh, I, I don't know when I'm working again. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I guess just... When you hear it and go, hey, I, I've heard that guy before. There you go. And there you just, go. And just give it a thumbs up, and that's all I can ask. Yeah, you, you're, you're doing some fantasy football writing, right? Yeah, I am. Um, the summer months are, are a grind, but once the once the football season starts, I'm back in it, uh, much to the chagrin of my wife, who yeah. um, has now become fed up with my love of football and fantasy football. So um, hopefully, uh, hopefully, I'll be able to carve out my own little space in my in my new house. Uh, that my wife doesn't have to see me on Sundays because I can tell you this, she gets very annoyed with me. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> we'll 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 be there to deflect uh, some emotions, maybe, uh, especially if there's a Bills game on. I'll be stoked to sit, see, check out your new place. Go up to Edsy's new place. Everybody's getting houses but me. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I get to tell a story. So, Edsy, uh, are you uh, are you excited for this one? I've been hyping this one up a lot. Yeah, you've uh, yeah. Well, you hype up most of your stories, but uh, this one quite a bit. You say this is uh, probably the best one you've ever written no the most historically oh, okay. important one i've okay. ever written you gotta okay. get precise. i kind of get like yeah i gave it a bit of an umbrella yeah because yeah. well, i couldn't remember exactly what you said before there you but, go uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right I'm being honest yeah well before we start this episode edzie and matt uh we we gotta start and give it a little bit of context and for that we're gonna get some like really broad history going here in fact we're gonna talk about the history of puerto rico where our story begins. Okay. So the indigenous name for the island is 
Barokian, Barinkian, I'm going to mess up a lot of these names, and the native population, always. <laughs> always, the native population on Puerto Rico is the Tiano people who also refer to themselves as uh, Baruk, Baracua. Bar- it's, they, I believe they are Boricuans. Boricuans, yes. Me, yes, and ask me why I know that, because um, as a wrestling fan... Oh, there was a wrestler named Savio Vega, uh-huh. who was from Puerto Rico, yep. and had other Puerto Rican wrestlers, and they were called Los Boricuas. He is 100% so, correct on this. G- you guys need to talk <laughs> about wrestling after we're done here. Don't talk about it with me. Talk about it with Ed's. Um, but that is amazing. Matt, thank you so much for adding that. That That is... Uh, yes. So, so sorry, say his name again and his com- his cohorts. Savio... Savio Vega and the group was called Los Boricuas. Amazing. And I always say to people, you can learn a lot of life lessons from wrestling. There you go. He's 100% and correct And I'll leave on it at that. <laughs> I did not expect us to be two paragraphs in and already talking wrestling. Uh, they arrived, uh, yeah, the, the Boricuas arrived on the island uh, at least a thousand years before the Span- Spanish colonial explorers. So, uh, Matt, I know you're Italian. But Christopher Columbus uh, shows up in 1493, and this is uh, when uh, things went wrong for the Barracuda people. Uh, So a lot of them die from smallpox, or they're kidnapped and enslaved, and forced to build settlements or work in the gold mines. In 1508, Juan Ponce de Leon founded the first European settlement, uh, Capara, uh, near a bay on the island's northeast coast. Eventually, it is renamed Puerto Rico, meaning the rich port, and eventually everybody just kind of refers to the whole island as Puerto Rico. So, hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, so, Spanish colonial rule basically takes over for the next 400 years. In the 1800s, people did start to fight for their independence against Spain, and they did gain some autonomy. Uh, 1898, during the Spanish-American War, the U.S. invades and occupies part of the island. And when the war ends, Spain secedes uh, Puerto Rico, along with Cuba, Guam, and the Philippines to the United States. So that is how America came to have Puerto Rico as a territory. Okay. Um, So the island's love of baseball was influenced by the U.S. occupation and then their colonial rule. But the teams, or the... The island actually had teams before the invasion, so it was uh, they had a team or two a year or two before that was mainly based on Cubans and other Puerto Ricans that, that had either traveled around and, and learned about the game. Because okay. remember, baseball is still really new at this point. Right. It's 1898, uh, so it's beginning to spread to the, the, the Caribbean uh, and the Latin American islands. So uh, the island was run by U.S. military for a little while. And then the Four Acre Act of 1900 gave Puerto Ricans a certain amount of uh, autonomy to do their own, you know, civil government. So, including a lot, uh, including being able to elect people to the House of Representatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. But the upper house, uh, the Senate, and the governor were appointed by the United States. So. They give them a little bit of autonomy, but they're like, we get to choose the real important people. Uh, So the U.S. then gave Puerto Rico the ability uh, to write and draft their own laws, but also the U.S. Congress retained the power to annul any acts uh, by the Puerto Rican legislature. 
So they're so like, that's kind of bullshit. Yeah, that yeah. seems pointless. <laughs> yeah. Here, here, we're here. We're gonna give you a bunch of stuff, but now you don't really have anything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We get yeah. the final say. <laughs> we get, you gotta run it by us first. <laughs> so they did that, and in 1914, the Puerto Rican House voted unanimously in favor of independence from the United States. But guess what they said? The U.S. Congress said it was unconstitutional and a violation of the Four Acre Act, which the, no Puerto Ricans had any say Yeah, in. exactly. So they were like, we want to leave. And the U.S. was like, no. It's not in your constitution yeah. that you had no say in. Yeah. Makes, oh, yeah. So they're not allowed. Uh, and then, so to sum this look really brief history up, uh, in 1917, uh, they passed the Jones-Safroth Act, which granted U.S. citizenship to all Puerto Ricans and made Puerto Rican males eligible for the military draft. Right in time for World War One. Oh, perfect. Like, I mean... <laughs> what a coincidence. What a, what, a, what a recruiting tool. Yeah. Like, the, the, American, the American army has just gotten it right over the last 150 <laughs> years. Like, hey, hey, you know what? I know why we're going to take you over because we need to go fight another war and take over another country. So we need more of you stiffs to come over with. There we go. You want citizenship? Yeah. You got it. We also. Yeah. But need, we got this. We, we, we got, got a little thing. mission for you we to go on, thing. actually. So 18,000. Just, just a small one. Just yeah. a small one. 18,000 uh, of the, the territory's residents were subsequently drafted into World War One. But this is where we start our story. Our story is not about Puerto Rico, but it is about a person from Puerto Rico. So Savio Vega. So, no. <laughs> and Los Boricuas. <laughs> exactly. So, um, March 18th, 1916, uh, about a year before the, they were granted citizenship, in Santurce, Puerto Rico, uh, which is a part of the city of San Juan, Hiram High uh, Bithorn was born. And I've done my best to to look up uh, the pronunciation. So Hiram is, in English would be Hiram. In a Spanish accent, it would be Iram. Okay. Uh, so I, I'm going to go with hi most of the time. So hi, guys. Uh, this is about <laughs> hi. Uh, so we had, <laughs> he had a Puerto Rican mother named Maria Sosa and a Danish father named Waldemar Beethorn. His father was an insurance agent and his mother was a teacher. And at one time, she actually produced a radio program. There you go. Huh, you guys have something in common, Matt. Uh, wow, like that! What a what a change! Like a radio <laughs> program then. Like what were they producing? Because my job is hard enough with the internet. I couldn't imagine what their job. Was. That was probably very difficult back then. So he had two older brothers and a little sister. Uh, everyone in the family, everyone in the family learned English at an early age, and the family took several trips to the United States when Hiram was a child. Uh, during his childhood, Hiram lost his big toe on his right foot in some kind of railway accident that what? I couldn't find any information on. It's <laughs> very open-ended. Yeah. <laughs> Did you play chicken with the train? Like, hey, I'm going to put my big toe on the, on the track here. I mean, I can't think of any sort of scenario. Like, did he get it stuck in a train door? Like, like there's... Like, Not one thing makes sense here. No, like it would have had to be like he just sticking his foot onto the railway track during a slow moving train, I guess. Maybe it won't hurt. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and how only the big toe is lost? Like well, unless he has an enormously big, big toe. Yeah. Where it's to the point where it makes he has to buy socks that are three sizes too big. 
I mean, I can't see another scenario, which just makes sense. <laughs> the train stopped. Why? That kid's toes in the way. <laughs> train derailed by child's toe. Yeah. <laughs> so he loses his big toe, but that doesn't stop him uh, at being good at sports. Uh, so he, uh, yeah, he was, his brothers were more than a decade older than him. I think they were, they were 10 and 11 years older than him. So he had the best coaches ever because his brothers would probably just, uh, you know, coach and take him out back after school and, and, and train him hard. Uh, so he grew up at Central High School in Santurce. Uh, and in 1932, he began to make a name for himself as a ball player. Uh, the 16-year-old Beethorn led his team of native Puerto Ricans to a 10-to-1 victory over the Richmond Baseball Club, a squad composed entirely of continental American players, including future Hall of Famer slugger Johnny Mize. So, hmm. 16, he's striking out Hall of Famers. Uh, nice. He's doing good. And so so oftentimes, before there was really like an organized winter league, uh, which we'll talk about soon, uh, you know, they'd have traveling clubs go throughout the winter, so some of these ball players could make money in the winter time too. Right. So Johnny Mize comes down and gets blown away by a 16-year-old high. Uh, so Beethorn was greatly talented, an all-around out athlete, and an imposing figure. He was about six one and two hundred pounds, so just a big kid. Uh, 1935, at the age of 19, he competed in the Central American and Caribbean Games held in San Salvador, El Salvador, as a multi-sport athlete. He took home silver in volleyball and bronze in basketball without a big toe, everybody. Wow. And, and like, and people, like, for people that are listening, like, 6'1 and 200 pounds in, in the early 1900s yeah. is a monster of a human being. Like, yeah. that's not just, like, I know I know with all the steroids and stuff that are in our food now <laughs> that it's pretty normal. But that's a, <laughs> that's a massive, massive human being that we're talking about. Oh, now. absolutely. He's, it said strapping. That was, that was the, uh, I guess, adjective used to. Uh, it's a common adjective from those, uh, yeah, from yeah. the writings strapping. those days. Yeah, just strapping. And just like, and like from the last, and, and like from the last episode, probably very muscle bound. Right. Right. Absolutely. This guy probably shoveled a lot too. Yeah. So <laughs> he turned his focus to baseball, uh, where his legend was growing. So after, you know, he gets some silver and bronzes and other sports, but he's just like, I'm going to just focus on baseball right now. He's about 19. Starting as a teenager, uh, Beethorn played winter ball for his local uh, team, the Senadores de San Juan, uh, as well as for a semi pro club, uh, Leon's de Ponce. So the Senadores of San Juan, uh, the Senators uh, translated, I, I believe they're still a club to this day. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is the beginning of, of the modern winter league in Puerto Rico. So in 1936, High faced a major league club for the first time, though he wasn't even on the other team. In the spring of 1936, F.F. Manley's Brooklyn Eagles came to Puerto Rico to play a series against the Cincinnati Reds. Once again, another thing that would happen at the time because, you know, yeah, well, I guess white and black teams would play each other in the United States, but right. uh, you know they would they would do this outside of the states, and they'd get much bigger crowd and audiences mm -hmm. and stuff mm -hmm. to have a Negro League team and an MLB team compete. Um, so Eva Manley also she'll have an episode. She's I read a book on her recently. She is absolutely one of the most badass women in baseball history. Um, so I was thinking about doing one on her, but I guess oh, well, you can I, have that. I one. could. Yeah, <laughs> all right, thank you. <laughs> Before the game. Uh, Against the Reds, the Eagles played uh, some local San Juan clubs, and they were impressed by High's big right arm. 
Soon after, the Eagles found themselves in a sticky situation. Star pitcher Leon Day had a sudden appendicitis and the team needed a pitcher. High was asked to pitch and at barely 20 years old with no preparation, High Beethorn held the Cincinnati Reds to one run over seven innings. Very good. Yeah. Uh, he fell wow. apart in the eighth uh, and allowed them to tie the game at four. Uh, but the Eagles pulled ahead in the top of the next inning and, and he got the win. So just incredibly impressive that this 20-year-old just comes in and, and does this to the Cincinnati Reds at the time. Yeah, amazing uh, debut. Amazing debut. Um, but the big headlines the next day is, of course, about this local kid who just pitched a gem against a major league club. Um, so this was the big break high needed because no other native Puerto Rican had played in modern segregated MLB baseball. And that's mm. hard to believe nowadays considering the talent pool that comes out of Puerto Rico. Right. But at yeah. this time, it was unheard of for someone to leave the island to play baseball in like mainland America. Yeah. So and 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 other islands too. Like it was it yeah. was mainly just like hey, you you're an American, you play baseball. Like that's kind of how this thing works. Yeah. And to not have and we we think about over the course of of history and and it's becoming more prominent now especially with, you know, the Negro Leagues finally getting the due that mm -hmm. they deserve. Mm -hmm. Like how much different some numbers would be. And and it's well documented like if you look at you know, like, would Babe Ruth have been as good if he actually played against the actual best players that were around instead of some of the trash that he got to play against? Right. Like, exactly. I think that's, I think it's, it's crazy to think that, you know, the society that we live in today where, you know, you, you play sports regardless of where you're from, it doesn't matter what sport it is to not have the best of the best playing a sport at one time is almost like unfathomable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. And this is right at the end of, of Ruth's career, right? And this is when we kind of see the tides of baseball history start to change uh, that, you know, eventually led to to Jackie Robinson. So it's it's not like in, there were no Puerto Ricans that were good enough before high, right? Uh, there were lots of uh, players like Pancho, uh, I'm going to butcher this, Com Coimbre, uh, Melito Navarro, and Perucho Zapata. Uh, they were all really talented, probably bef beyond many people's wildest dreams, but they were too dark. And I mean, skin color wise, it, mm -hmm. it's fucked up, but they were too dark for segregated American baseball. High had many things going for him other than, uh, than the other Latin players. He spoke English, first of all, which put him ahead. And he also had a father of European heritage, as well as a last name, <laughs> as well as last and unfortunately most important to the scouts watching him, he could pass as white. So just kind of messed up, but that's why he gets the look up, yeah. he gets. Is because they're like, I could throw that guy down in Mobile, Alabama, and no one would blink twice at him. Yeah, that's fucked. What a what a yeah! It, it, it <laughs> really a is fucked amazing. up credential. Yeah, yeah. Seriously, like, hey, you're you're really good, but you know what? The reason why we think we can bring you over is because we can pass you as white. Yeah. Like, again, just unfathomable that the, again we we know all the history and everything, but to think you know whatever it is almost 90 years later that this is what was going on and so many people were robbed of oh. professional careers mm -hmm. in whatever sport it was it's it's crazy well just wait <laughs> just, <laughs> just i like that yeah like just, that. just wait um so 
Uh, outfielder Ted Norbert uh, was also watching that day, uh, and he'd actually been watching High for a long time. In fact, he had faced High back in 1933 when Harem was just 17 years old and made a mental note to remember the talented kid. Uh, he remembered High uh, and recommended him to the New York Yankees uh, and the Nof- Norfolk Tars. And just like that, Haram Beethorn was heading to Virginia to play pro baseball. At 20 years old, Haram uh, had achieved baseball fame in Puerto Rico and now was on his way to the United States. His first stop was in Norfolk, Virginia in Class B in the Piedmont League. Uh, and obviously it's a Yankees affiliate. So... Mm-hmm. High went 16-9 and nine over 211 innings, uh, which is pretty darn good. Uh, yeah. But his ERA was a 422, so, so good, but not great. Uh, in 1937, he split the year between the Tars and, the, and Binghamton of the New York Penn League. Uh, his numbers were good, but not great again. In 1938, he mainly played for Binghamton again, but earned a promotion to AA where he did not fare well, giving up seven earned runs in just nine innings pitched. Um, so at some point in his minor league career, in these first two years, he did manage to win both games of a doubleheader <laughs> where he, he apparently just, he pitched the first one and then just sat down and they went to like 15, 16 innings and he, and he had to come in and pitch in the second game as well. Jesus. We've had a couple stories where like guys have been pitchers and pitched both games of a doubleheader, but like, I've never heard of that where he had like a game go so far into extras and then yeah, get back out there again, but he didn't get there at the second game. I almost Fuck. didn't even include that. It's imagine, just, imagine throwing like seven innings. You play, you pitch really well, and you're like, "Yeah, I'm done for the day. Yeah. Like, I, I'm good. I'm good." And it's like, "Hey, bud, get back in there." Sixteenth inning. Yeah. <laughs> like, man, I'm, I'm, my arm hurts. Like, come on here. I'm so jaded by looking back at all this baseball. Like, I, and nowadays in, in coaching and stuff, like you, we watch pitch counts so so intensely, and for good reason. But I just. I'm so jaded at, at old timey baseball where they're like, yeah, he threw 600 innings. <laughs> his his arm fell off in the off season, yeah. but we've stitched it back together, so exactly. he's good to go. Um, so just wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Bithorn was 22, and the Yankees were in their heyday of the 30s dynasty uh, with a packed pitching staff, including Lefty Gomez, who who although was born in in the United States, like he was also a, a early Latin American star, or at least somebody that had uh you know spanish heritage Mm -hmm. uh so it didn't look like he'd be in the majors anytime soon uh so high returned to play winter ball uh as he did every year for the senador senadores uh this of san juan high success uh was a detriment uh at his first like real career in puerto rico Sorry, I messed that up. But either way, High goes back to Puerto Rico, and since he's white enough to play in the United States, the league classifies him as white, even though he's a native Puerto Rican. Okay. What? So what? just what? you you guys sure. know the what? CFL, and anybody who does it like you need a certain amount of of you know native born Canadians on yeah. Canadian yeah. football. So that's the same thing in this league, and they basically try to label him as a foreigner, a white foreigner now instead of. A native Puerto Rican, he has to fight this because they're like, oh, well, you were white enough to go play in the States. So, what? Yeah, exactly. So he's getting it from no both sides. Um, of course, a few years high was adored by all the Senadores fans and his teammates. And when San Juan manager Juan Torilla 
uh, resigned only two weeks into the 1938 season, the Senadores chose a 22-year-old Beethorn to be the manager. 22-year-old Beethorn to be a manager? Yeah. <laughs> so Why? He's the youngest manager in the history of Puerto Rican Professional Winter League. Okay. Uh, just because he was so good. So we had to like okay. fight well, to, good for him. to be recognized as a as a native Puerto Rican in this league. But eventually he was able to, you know, win the hearts and minds of the whole organization. And he's a legend still to this day. All right. Uh, so in 1939, High headed west to play for the Oakland Oaks of the Pacific Coast League. And then played for the Hollywood Stars in 1940 and 1941. This is when High Beethorn started to make a name for himself on mainland America. Before he was just some obscure minor league player that barely anybody knew about. Uh, but he, at West, he, requ- he acquired the name uh, Hurricane Beethorn or the Tropical Hurricane. All right. So, those are some li- awesome nicknames. Those are awesome. Little bit, little bit of little bit of uh foreshadowing no a little oh. bit of uh you know a little racism in there he comes uh, from <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you're the you're the tropical it's, hurricane the right. man from costa rica it's, it's okay it's it's this thing that they've that they had at that time was called veiled racism there you go there you go <laughs> Matt, Matt nails it, it on the head completely fine to them yeah exactly like, yeah 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 for, we have we have tropical storms here, but nothing like these two in Puerto Rico. <laughs> yeah. So he, High's making a name for himself. He's getting awesome nicknames that are veiled in racism. Uh, he's pitched 222 innings for the Oaks in 1939 and puts up a 3.64 ERA. Pretty darn good. He's then moved to the Stars, but has a down year in 1940, going 10 and 17 with an ERA in the mid fours. Uh, clearly looking back Ooh. at it, uh, he was struggling with his control. He was walking about nine batters per, or, or five batters per nine innings, which is not good. No. Um, so, but he was just not playing ball down there. He was rubbing shoulders with celebrities in Hollywood. Of course, as you would Ex- when you're on the Hollywood stars. Well, the owner- I mean, isn't that a prerequisite? Exactly. That's what, I, that's what I thought. So the owner of the stars had sold small shares of the team to actors and in a publicity campaign, he aimed to highlight the Hollywood stars as the team owned by the stars of Hollywood. So to do this brilliant yeah yes. solid brilliant. marketing yeah solid marketing so he's selling like really you know like hey buy one percent of the team for like a hundred bucks and you know i can claim that this famous 1930s movie star owns this team mm-hmm. um so and also remember like the giants and the dodgers are still in new york at this time so this is big baseball out there the pacific coast league was a big thing. The California leagues were, were big back then because they had no, you know, yeah, national there's no alternative, no national American alternative. Yeah. yeah. So uh, they were players would appear in ads and go to events and meet with movie stars uh, all the time. So this was pretty awesome. Uh, it was baseball in California. I got to that. Uh, it was a big deal, and High was enjoying playing in California, in the California sunshine, and rubbing shoulders with movie stars. He befriended actress Ida Lupino, uh, and there were rumors of romance, of course. Well, uh, as there would be. As there would be, but no evidence to support it. They were like, back in that, they were uh, Jeter and J-Lo. Yeah. Is yeah. that a thing? That was a thing? <laughs> Jeter, Jeter dated a lot of people. Well, yeah, but... Madonna, yeah, could, Jeter, could, Madonna. No, That's it's what I'm, yeah, he could feel the whole. That's what I've yeah, 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 right, yeah. Right. yeah. He could, Jeter could feel the whole baseball team. Yeah, I think we, I think <laughs> I've seen that anecdotally. We've got, <laughs> but you know, you know, think about this concept. So, a minor league baseball player 
And this would never happen today unless you were some big prospect or whatever, which yeah. clearly this guy, we don't believe that he was this yeah, incredible no. prospect that we were just waiting for. Yeah. So you're a minor league baseball player who's rubbing shoulders with actors and actresses in Hollywood who are a big deal when in any other decade or in any other walk of life, it would not happen. No. But for a minor league baseball player or baseball team to have this sort of attention attached to it in what was a bit like there was a big boom in the 30s and 40s in Hollywood with yep. creating content and creating movies. Yeah. So like that to me is the most mind blowing thing so far, except for the 22 year old manager thing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> think, about, think about like I'm I'm a nobody minor league baseball player, but everybody knows who I am because I'm affiliated with this Hollywood team. Yeah. And it. And it's, I don't think that that, like, I've never even heard of this thing. Yeah. Like, it's, it's so, it's so way out there. And that's why, like, these old time stories just throw you for a complete loop Absolutely. on, like, what you would expect. Like, the Hollywood stars. What a great name, by the way. Yeah, well, that could be a whole episode in itself, I'm sure. I'm sure there was just so much debauchery in that team. Yeah. Uh, so he's there. It, he deals with injuries, right? He had a bad season his first season, even though he's, he's hanging out with all these stars. Uh, so he has bone spurs in his right elbow, an injury that would continually hinder his career. So he needs an operation, uh, and he didn't pitch well uh, after... Yeah, sorry. He needs an operation, uh, and he didn't pitch in winter ball that season as he recovered. But remember, he's the manager of the team, so he doesn't pitch for them, but he's still the he's manager. He's still down there. Um, so High then blasts off in 1941. He throws 16 complete games and Holy gets shit. 17 wins for the Stars. So huge. He's, that is huge. Yeah. 16 complete games. Yeah. So he basically almost all of his wins he he won. He just pitched the whole game. Yeah. Um, so he does really well uh, and he catches the attention of another major league team. So he's still affiliated with the Yankees at this point, even though the Pacific Coast League is is just its own entity. The Yankees are essentially loaning him to that league. Right. Uh, it's not an actual affiliate. So, uh, but there's some sort of weird Rule 5 draft that I couldn't really find any information on. But on September 30th, 1941, the Chicago Cubs drafted Hiram B. Thorne in this weird draft I couldn't find anything out about. <laughs> so, so uh, not only that, but they also drafted Cuban-born catcher Salvador Chico Hernandez from the Texas League's Tulsa Oilers. Um and just like that, so the Yankees were just stacked, and he was not even getting a look. He wasn't considered that good, but the Cubs were in desperate need. The Cubs sucked. Uh, they were really bad. Um, so Beethorn made his major league debut for the Cubs on April 15th, 1942. He makes the team out of spring training. He's on it. And at Sportsman Park in St. Louis, Beethorn pitched two innings, walking one and not allowing a hit. And with that, High Beethorn became the first baseball player from puerto rico to play major league baseball all right nice in the not white white guy yes yeah yes let's not forget that oh yeah just wait (laughs) (laughs) Um, i i am i've been waiting waiting for the apex i'm waiting for the apex here because there's been a lot of just waits and i know it's gonna be good dude (laughs) like just the ending of this one uh my my friend uh theo who did the uh artwork for for this show is uh this one's for you, bud. You said you wanted more like this. So. <laughs> On April 28th... I know what that means, and yeah. that scares me 
be a bit. Yeah, on April 28th, <laughs> high-pitched uh, seven-shutout inning, or a seven-pitch, a seven-hit shutout. Jesus, Sean, get it out. Uh, against the, the Cubs rivals, the St. Louis Cardinals, Bithorn's catcher that afternoon was Chico Hernandez, and the pair became the first all-Latin American battery in Major League history. The duo would sometimes forego signs and just talk in Spanish uh, when they knew nobody else around was speaking Spanish. So it's just like fastball might as well. Yeah. What, a, what an advantage to have. Yeah. I mean, you could literally get away with anything at that point. Yeah. Absolutely. So in 1942, I'm pretty sure the Cubs sucked. They just suck around now. Uh, he Beethorn pitches 171 and a third innings uh, to a 3.68 ERA. Pretty darn good. Uh, splitting his time uh, between the bullpen and starting with 16 starts, 22 relief appearances. His big right arm was still a bit wild. He walked more batters than he struck out, about 4.3 walks per nine innings uh the cubs were terrible in 1942 and as you guessed it high probably faced some racism here we go all right so when, strap in everybody when high was brought in in relief during a game on july 15th brooklyn skipper leo derocher yes the nice progressive manager from the movie 42 uh-huh. I'm correct with that, right? Yeah, that's, that's the guy. That's Leo DeRocher. That's the guy. Leo DeRocher immediately began hurling racial slurs and insults at Bithorn. For two innings, Cubs first baseman's first baseman Phil Cavaretta uh, tried to keep the Puerto Rican calm in the face of DeRocher's continued continuous assault. Bithorn turned towards the Brooklyn dugout and Hurricane High fired a fastball straight at DeRocher's head. Nice. Good nice. for him. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. The manager went diving for cover. Uh, High was fined $25, and the Moline Dispatch reported that several of his teammates offered to help him pay it. So they were being sweet. They, you know, they offered to help pay the fine when he threw a ball at a racist. Uh, DeRocher, though, was quoted as saying that Beethorn got pretty hot. Maybe he just can't take it. Yeah, that's nice gaslighting there. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No reason, no reason why he got hot, right? He just, I mean... That's just regular Major League chirping, you know? Calling people terrible things. Um, so the next afternoon, in response to this, Beethorn took infield practice standing right in front of the Dodgers' dugout. So just kind of a show of, you know, you got to call me a chicken, I'll just stand was, right in front yeah. of your dugout, and yeah. uh, you guys want to say something, you'll say something. I'm right here, so... Good for him. Mm-hmm. As we say, strapping. He's not afraid of anybody. Um, so the fact that Bithorn was Latino was enough for some fans and players to doubt his whiteness, despite the very odd fact that the Cubs publicly published his biographical information stating he was of Danish and Spanish heritage. So that's really, like, imagine a team just publishing somebody's heritage I was going to say, it just seems nowadays. like overcompensation yeah. like, to be like, he, he's white, he's white, like, everybody. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we obviously people know where, where players are from and stuff, and we advertise if you're Venezuelan or Colombian or, or Puerto Rican or... or Dominican right, or American right. or Canadian even, but it's just in this time they were, they had to put it out there just to calm people down, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. so like, fucked it, up. Yeah, and, oh, and it's I to see. the yeah, point. Fuck. It's to the point of you kind of look at this situation and say like, okay, like I, you need to believe this. Like we will even get you his father's uh, birth certificate. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, they would, yeah, It's almost like they would go to the nth degree with this just to prove, and that's like society was just. A, 
terrible, yeah. terrible place anyway at that yeah. point. So, you know, he had a good first year in the major leagues, but his second year in 1943 was just friggin' amazing. Uh, he was quite dominant. He was hurricane fucking high. Uh, and he went 18 and two with a 2.6 ERA over, uh, just under 250 innings. Jesus. Just, it's kind of good. Kind of yeah, good. 19 complete games. So just what? dominant. Amazing. Uh, I believe, uh, that, that he still holds the record for, for shutouts, uh, by a major league pitcher from Puerto Rico. Uh, wait, so what, what was his record? 18 and 12 with a 2.6 ERA. That's that's almost a Grom territory there. Almost. And and had and had 19 complete games. Yes. Yes. So he pitched at least one complete game that he lost. Wow. So and we, we <laughs> what we can also what we can also deduce from this is that yes, he pitched a lot of innings. And uh two, uh the Chicago Cubs couldn't hit worth a damn. No, exactly. That's <laughs> what I mean. They were they were awful. And you know what? They they get good. But you'll find out. Yeah, no. So he misses. <laughs> you'll find out. So uh, we have a lot of things to find you out. You got still. so much. This is going to be a long one, everybody tuning in. You already know how long it is yeah, by the time right. you're listening. Uh, so he managed to find the zone. He lowered his whip to an even one. And that was easily the highlight of the year uh, and of his career in baseball. Though some of that success could be due to the fact that he was pitching against a depleted talent pool because of World War Two, right? So World War Two is going on. You know the Ted Williams of the time and stuff. People and are Hank Greenberg. Hank Greenberg and... the, the the biggest hitters in the game are are serving the military. Uh, so that being said, he was still really good, especially against really good teams. So the best team in the league uh, was the Cardinals that year. Beethorn only allowed two runs against them in 32 innings that year. So the Damn. best team in the National wow. League, he held to two runs in 32 innings. So. I, I think that's safe to say he was dominating no matter who he was facing. I was going to say, what does and that we, say for the rest su- of the league? Yeah, and we'll somehow find out that the Cubs lost the games that he oh, pitched yeah. against the Cardinals, <laughs> yeah. even though giving up that little amount of runs. Yeah, they, they scored a quarter of a run somehow, and we didn't get any. <laughs> uh, so High didn't strike out a lot of batters. He actually put the ball on the ground. Apparently, he had a really, really good sink. Uh, as you can hear by a Cubs shortstop, Lenny Marullo, uh, who said he had a natural sinker and he would throw it from a low three-quarter position. When he pitched, we knew as infielders we were going to get a lot of work. He was always good, but you knew you were going to be busy. So he puts the ball in play. He's the, the Mark Burley kind of of his time, and he throws hard, but he's got a hard sinker. He puts the ball in play. He, he really strikes out only a couple guys a game. But speaking of World War II... Hiram Beethorn was drafted into the Navy after that season. So he's off to the Navy now. Uh, He would not play in 1944 or 1945. Beethorn told a newspaper, After being with a losing team many years, I'm now joining an outfit that can't lose. (laughs) So just just whipping on the Cubs. Shots fired. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Just (laughs) now. I'm on a winning team now, not like those Chicago Cubs. Yeah. Even even though I might die, I'm yeah. on a winning team here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'd much rather die with a chance at winning yeah. than play for the Cubs. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Beethorn served his country, uh, but his service actually brought him back home, and he was stationed in the port at San Juan, Puerto Rico. Mm. Uh, yeah, so he was at the San Juan Naval Air Station. Beethorn served his country and managed slash played for a service team that entertained troops and also raised money for the war relief. So he gets to play baseball as part of his his service. 
so he's in the Navy, but he's coaching and, and playing. And, and instead of, you know, making rich owners money, he's trying to raise money for uh, for the war effort. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was discharged in September 1945 and just missed out on the Cubs pennant. If you guys don't know, the Cubs actually won the pennant in 45. So, <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> so he just missed out on that. So he went to join one winning team and yeah. left another uh, winning team, and apparently. Then, yeah, yeah, exactly. Fuck. So uh, that winter, he married his wife, Virginia, in Mexico before they headed to Puerto Rico for Winter League. Uh, Virginia was from Chicago. She was a bank teller that he met randomly, uh, cashing those those Cubs paychecks. Yeah. I'm sure that's a good pickup line. Just like, hey, look where this is from. Yeah. <laughs> that's right, Mr. Wrigley. I play for the Cubs. <laughs> um, so uh, he played in the Puerto Rican Winter League. Um, but at some point in his military uh, slash winter ball time, High's arm began to nag him. Remember, he'd already had bone spurs, um, but they didn't really replace the cartilage when they had taken it out during the previous surgery, so he'd heal faster. Um, so he had also gained a reported 25 to 45 pounds during his time in the Navy. See? Uh, the old, so he ate the old well war t- Yeah, yeah. The old wartime 45. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was the... He was the only person during that time yeah. who actually gained weight. Yeah, Everybody yeah. else lost weight because there was no food or money to go around. But this guy yeah. somehow found his way into the buffet line. <laughs> exactly. He was friends with the cook, clearly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he was just, he didn't have to fight. He had to play baseball, right? I'm not, I don't want to, you know, True. put his service down to the country. But yeah, he was, uh, he had a, a bit of an easier service time, I believe. I didn't read anything about him actually shipping out further than Puerto Rico. Right. Um, uh, yeah, he, he also definitely hurt himself while playing in the Puerto Rican League's Winter Championship uh, on a play at the plate. So before he's supposed to come back to the Cubs in 46, he's he's already banged up and he's fat. So that's not good. Uh, in 46 for the Cubs, he only pitched 86 and two-thirds innings, putting up a 3.84 ERA. Not bad. Uh, but his whip skyrocketed again, and he, had, uh, he gave up uh, more... More due to hits than walks. I, I oh sorry, more more uh, more walks than Ks at this point. Okay. Um, yeah, he did not seem like the high of 1943. So while this was going on, the racism of its era reared its ugly head yet again. Writer Fred Lieb wrote a story about Beethorn in his 1977 memoirs, Baseball as I Have Known It. So remember, he's really good about the car- against the Cardinals, and the Cardinals do not like him. Uh, So late in the winter of 46 and 47, when I was working in St. Louis, I was invited to see a performance of Catherine Dunham's All Black Dance Troupe. I did not know the man who had arranged for me to sit in the wings throughout the performance. During the intermission, he brought over one of the women dancers and introduced me. She is the first cousin of High Beethorn, the pitcher, he explained, to make conversation. Yes, the girl volunteered immediately. My mother and High's mother are sisters. So somebody arranged for this baseball writer to go see an all-black dance troupe. Yes. And a girl claimed to be High's cousin. Yeah. So they're trying to... Sabotage? Sabotage him, essentially. Right. So it's clearly set up to discredit Beethorn. Uh, whether she was actually his cousin or not, it's, mm-hmm. we, we don't know, right? It could have just been completely set up. Uh, but High's mother's background is mixed, and they, you know, they don't really know that much, nor should they care. Uh, no. Yeah. Right. So unfortunately, uh, the attempt to sabotage his career came 
right before it was already coming to an end. High was in his 30s now, and his life of playing year-round baseball was catching up to his pitching arm. In January 1947, High was purchased by the Pittsburgh Pirates. Then on March 22nd, he was selected off waivers by the Chicago White Sox. Bithorn pitched only two innings for the White Sox before he was relief released. He, he had a brief stop back with the Hollywood Stars, but was released shortly after rejoining his old team. Uh, so Beathorn goes under arm surgery in the hopes of coming back for the 1949 season. And that really, really did not go well. He convinces the Cubs to give him a minor league look. Um, and he puts up a five ERA for their minor league clubs that year. So just not good. Um, Beathorn's career was all but order over. Uh, but High needed to be on the baseball field. So he'd do what anyone would do. What's he going to do? He became the mascot. <laughs> kind of. Because he could fit into the suit. <laughs> <laughs> he became an umpire. Hi- uh... He was hired by the Pioneer League for the 1951 season. So not only was High Beethorn the first uh, Puerto Rican player to play in the MLB, he was the first Puerto Rican umpire of organized baseball. Fuck, he's doing it all. Yeah. So and eating too. Go yeah, figure. Yeah, yeah. Go figure. Uh, that's when you become an umpire. <laughs> um, so in May 1951, High became a papa uh, when his wife Virginia gave birth to a son who is, I believe, known as Hiram Jr. Later that year, High's mom Maria fell ill, and High decided to drive alone from Chicago to his sister's house in Mexico City, where his mom was staying. So. It's about 35 hours today, and this is in 1951. Mm, I was going to say, that's not uh, that's not a trip around the corner. I mean, no. like that's that's a long, long way to go. Yeah. And for a guy that was making money at the major league level, you think, I don't know, maybe you could get a flight out? Like, yeah, I, 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 I think he wanted his car there, I guess, when he was driving, which makes it just so much weirder. Like, honestly, strap yourselves in. So Virginia didn't want to subject her newborn to such a long road trip, obviously, uh, and she didn't like the idea of High doing it alone. But the day after Christmas, he loaded up his 47 Buick and began the long drive to Mexico City. On December 28th, High checked into the Hotel Almante in Almante, Texas, or Almante, Mexico, sorry, not Texas, Mexico at 3 a.m., um, so when Beethorn left the next day and all of this, it gets really convoluted fellas. Like there is so many accounts of this. I did my best to, to dissect and give you guys the clearest account of what happened. So Beethorn's at this hotel. He goes to leave. Obviously he's making time in two days. He's made it down to Mexico. He's driving like a madman to go see his mom who, who is very ill. Um, he gets pulled over by a police officer by the name of Ambrosio Castillo Cano. Uh, The officer demands to see his documents, and he wasn't happy with the documents High produced. He said High said he was in need of cash and offered to sell the car to the officer for just a few hundred bucks. Yeah, so that's weird. That is weird. Yeah, so the officer... How do you finish the trip? That's the question. Are you going to walk the rest of the way? Exactly. Doesn't make sense. So the officer became suspicious when High said he was selling it for such a low price and took High into custody. So at this point, what I'm saying, who knows what actually happened? Because what happened next, like, no one actually really knows other than the people that were there. There is lots of court documents and stuff in it if you want to go down to Mexico and you 
speak Spanish, I'm sure we could probably get even more <laughs> insight on this, but it is well documented in the press. Um, so according to Castillo, the police officer, what, he got into the car with Beethorn and ordered him to drive to the local police station. A fight ensued, and fearing for his life, the policeman shot the Puerto Rican in the stomach. God damn. Yeah. So High gets shot in the stomach. And also some of this, uh, there's other accounts where, where he gets back to the police station. And then the chief is like, well, you can drive to Mexico City to like verify who you are. And High's like, yeah, I have the documents for the car there, which doesn't make sense. He does not live there. He lives mm-hmm. in Chicago. Yeah. So whatever happened, whether it was on the way to the police station or leaving the police station to somehow drive the next eight to 10 hours to Mexico city with this random police officer. Imagine, imagine you just being like, they're like, Oh, we think you stole this car. And you're like, Oh, just drive me to Chicago. And they're like, cool. Right. So it's, it's a long way away. Um, but a fight ensues. High tries to escape custody and the policeman shoots him in the stomach. Uh, A doctor appears on the scene and what put place over the next 12 hours is extremely unbelievable and probably because it's a lie. So the doctor <laughs> named Virgilio Hinojosa decided to load high into a car and drive 85 miles to a hospital in Ciudad Victoria. Uh, and on the way, apparently high confessed to the doctor and this police officer to being a communist spy. What? What? What a twist! Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it's almost unbelievable, if you ask me. It is absolutely unbelievable. Wait, what? What's more unbelievable? The fact that he that he admit that he admitted to being a communist spy, or that the doctor's like, nah, you got a you got a gunshot wound. We'll just drive you eighty five miles yeah. to this hospital. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. None of it makes sense. None of it makes sense. Um, so Beethorn did make it to the hospital alive, but died shortly after on December 29th, 1951. He was unceremoniously thrown into a mass grave with no one present understanding who the man was. A mass grave? Yeah. Wow. It's just a big pit for the patients that you didn't know who they were. What the fuck? Yeah. So Okay, okay so, so again, the 85 miles, if we had done this maybe a slightly bit earlier maybe we could have figured this one out but i don't know yeah maybe maybe the doctor should have just treated him you know something like that there and then right like it's so we'll you'll see so soon enough uh press got word of the famous high beethorn's death and unfortunately that's also how his wife found out about his death while listening to the radio Oh, oh my god and after she said she didn't want him to go yeah. by himself yeah so she hears it over the radio she has to call the chicago tribune to confirm that this is actually true and not just a radio fuck up um so awful awful stuff uh so questions began to be asked why would high want to sell his car uh his wife said he had like a thousand two thousand dollars cash when he left two days earlier Uh, And he was just a day's drive from his mom. The whole reason he was going on this trip, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, also the officer's story slowly began to change, and it was clear something was not right. Later questioning discovered that El Monte's police chief, Fidel Garza, had instructed the hotel's owner to inform him when any foreigner driving a fancy car checked in, as he wanted to buy a car at a good price. Hmm. 
So that's pretty interesting. That's pretty sketchy. Also, some something don't smell right here. Yeah. Also, just so you guys know, the police chief was spotted driving around in Beethorn's Buick uh, days after his death. Also, fishy. A, cor- a corrupt police chief in Mexico. Yeah. Who knew it? Who? Yeah. It's 1951. <laughs> Thanks God things have changed. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Um, so the communist thing was also most likely made up. Probably when they realized that they'd killed somebody that was really famous. Yeah. Because uh, at the time, obviously, uh, the communists, like, it was, we were doing the, the whole... Uh, the whole fear campaign. Yeah, the McCarthy era yeah. stuff. So he wanted to ensure that he could get away with shooting. So, you know, shooting a, Mac, or a or sorry, a communist spy is, is you know... Totally that, acceptable. Totally acceptable. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Beethorn's wife and sister uh, swore up and down that the ball player was no communist. In fact, was definitely against uh, everything happening at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, as questions were asked, it became pretty obvious that uh, Officer Castillo Cano and Chief Fidel Garza tried to shake down Beethorn for his car and then murdered the unarmed Beethorn as he tried to escape their custody. So, Officer Castillo is put on trial and found guilty, uh, and he is sentenced to a very, very shameful eight years in prison. Very shameful. The Mexican justice system. Yeah. Yeah. I it's, mean, does it get any better? Uh, yeah, there's, there's so many. All justice, but just, yeah, come on. I mean, they really weren't even going to prosecute them at first until the, you know, the American... There was a public outcry. Yeah, there was a public outcry, and I believe the FBI got involved and, and kind of forced their hand that... This police chief apparently got away with it, but his officer ends up in jail for eight years. But and and the police chief, after all this, is still driving around in that Buick. <laughs> yeah, still, that, still that's the part of the, the, the courthouse. I can't believe this officer did something so terrible. <laughs> Just, as I as I stroll away in yeah. my Buick. Yeah. Um, so uh, he was put on trial. Uh, Doctor Hinojosa's refusal to treat the dying man in El Monte and his 85 mile detour to Ciudad Victoria was later to be. Con- was later determined to be the cause of death for Beethorn. So I knew it. Yeah, I mean, it was a gut shot. Like if, if I mean, on like I'm not a doctor, but I would think if you treat it soon enough, you you have a chance. Um, so United States State Department gets involved uh, to repatriate High's body uh, to Puerto Rico. The body was sent home in terrible condition, caked in mud and blood, and still wearing the same clothes. Oh. Uh, Thorne's casket was placed on the field of San Juan's Sixto, Sixto Escobar Stadium, where 6,000 fans filed past to pay their last respects to Puerto Rico's first major leaguer. The Senadores played uh, the rest of the season with black patches on their sleeves, honoring their player slash manager and hero High Beethorn. Hiram Beethorn was Porter was a Puerto Rican baseball trailblazer who led the charge for so many other amazing players and probably belonged <laughs> no, sorry and probably banged a movie star or two along his way. <laughs> uh, he pitched a, almost certainly. Almost certainly. He pitched in 105 MLB games compiling a 4.9 baseball reference war his record was 34 and 31 overall and he pitched to a career 3.16 era over 502 innings pitched which is pretty darn good 
Yeah, that's right? pretty respectable. If he just didn't get hurt, he'd probably have a longer career. Um, well, he got fat going away to after military service, and you'd have to think that that probably had a hindrance on him as well, right? Like, oh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Um, so, yeah, High Beethorn is not forgotten. In 1962, the island's biggest and most modern baseball stadium was built, Estadio Hiram Beethorn. Uh, the stadium has hosted dozens of major sporting events and concerts. And to be in a couple of Toronto guys, you might recall that in opening day 2001, the Blue Jays faced the Texas Rangers uh, at Hiram Beethorn Stadium in hmm. Puerto Rico. Uh, and it also became part-time home of the Montreal Expos in 2003 and 2004 when they played there. Uh, I can't remember that. Yeah, that's what I mean. I don't remember I, that being the name of the stadium. But. Well, it was. Um, most recently, the Cleveland Indians and Minnesota Twins played a two-game series at Hiram Beethorn Stadium on April 17th and 18th, 2018. Hmm. So, yeah, that is basically the story of... of the first Puerto Rican to ever play Major League Baseball. And there's so many more nowadays. There's yeah, so yeah. many more. So I asked you guys to think about your favorite Puerto Rican ball player. And I, I don't know if I should go first or if I should let you guys... Uh, I honestly, I'm going to be honest and say I forgot that you asked me that <laughs> and I didn't think of a guy, but right off the top of my head, I hope I'm not screwing up that he's from Puerto Rico, but is. Carlos Delgado yeah. is Puerto Rican, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and that's yeah. yeah, and that's exactly who I was gonna say. I, and that's who I was gonna say too. See, well, there's also Alomar, <laughs> right? Roberto Alomar. But I mean, yeah. honestly, well, now nowadays, no. no. Um, but at the same point, uh, yeah, I, I think Delgado was more of our time period for right, us. You right, know, yes. you know, Alomar was off the team by the time we were like eight or nine, and and Delgado was there for those like prime. Delgado years. was like. Oh, just like God for like those like years of us growing up from you know like the elementary school years. Into, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're into adulthood, when you have no other priorities other than following your favorite sports team. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Matt, you can't say that. That's your job. I know. I'm, I'm still, I, it's I know it's still my life, right? But you know the the Delgado thing. Um, just as we talk about him, what a monster he was! Like not only did he have power but he was a doubles machine he oh, yeah. was you know like it, it is a real shame that he didn't get the the look that i think he deserved from the hall of fame voters because i, I think when you look at his career numbers and what he did like you're talking about one of the best hitters in baseball over the stretch of five six seven years oh yeah and that Absolutely. has to mean something he yeah. was he was what like 50 home runs short of 500 yeah. which is pretty much a lock to get you in yeah and i feel like he's one of those guys that is going to get to the modern era committee and they're gonna look at his career a little bit differently because you know he was unfortunately he played he just played on some bad teams but you know the the blue jays offensively were had some of the better teams in baseball when he was there and even the Mets the Mets were just a mess yeah but Carlos Delgado was an incredible baseball player yeah and yeah. he just doesn't get the recognition that 
I think he deserves. Yeah, well, and and I, I think he, he finally made the playoffs a, a couple times after leaving Toronto. But yeah, no, his, his 2000, I believe it was 2003 season, was one of the best seasons in baseball history. Well, at least for Blue Jays, at least. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, well, I'm glad we're all on the same page with Delgado there. Um, so that was easy. <laughs> That's I do... just an easy consensus right yeah, there. There's yeah. no debate. Whatsoever. No debate. Carlos Delgado. <laughs> I will say Francisco Lindor. Francisco Lindor is is fantastic. Obviously not having the best year this year so far, but uh, I think he's one of the best players in the league right now. And surprisingly, Puerto Ricans. Like, there's not a lot of pitchers that come from Puerto Rico. Like. I maybe they think it's cursed and they'll you know they can't go to Mexico, but yeah, maybe they're all communists. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they all want to play for the Hollywood Stars. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so I have a little addendum to this. So so baseball is still the most important sport in Puerto Rico, with the island pumping out tons and tons of talent, uh, seemingly all shortstops or or catchers or you know the Molinas, the Baezes, the Lindors, mm-hmm. uh, but not a lot of pitchers. But still. Uh, Puerto Rico is still a U.S. territory and not a state, uh, so they do still, I believe, get the same representation. They don't get any representation in the Senate. Uh, the island's government is still mainly controlled by the federal government's interest, including very recently, like on June 30th, 2016, when President Obama signed into law H.R. 5278 PROMISA, uh, establishing a control board over the Puerto Rican government, the president would appoint all seven voting members to the board, and the board would have broad sovereign powers to effectively overrule decisions by the Puerto Rican legislature, governor, and other public authorities. So, we haven't really moved that no, far forward not, in this hundred years here. No, not at all. <laughs> obviously. I was going to say, I was going to say, you, you still want something? We're still not giving you yeah. yeah. Wait for the next world war. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, honestly, I, I don't want to get too political with the, it, but I, that's, I mean, Puerto Ricans and, and Puerto Rico itself is, is still sometimes treated as a, a second class, uh, you know, area of the United States. Uh, and honestly, it's amazing that that High Beethorn got where he was, and and it's really sad that the only reason that other players didn't is uh, because of their skin color. Yeah, yeah, it's a dark, it is, shitty it time. Is, yeah, and it is it is really amazing too that um, you know we talk about how incredible it was for him to get to where he got to, but the only reason why he got to where he got to was because they could market him as white. Yeah. That to me is, you know, he was, he like you said, he was fortunate where he got opportunities that other people didn't, but it was unfortunate circumstances that led him to that opportunity. Yeah, right. And it still wasn't good enough for some people at the time. Yeah, they had to have like, a marketing like campaign. To, yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly, know? exactly. When I read that, I was surprised. But then again, that's just because of, you know, you, you watch 42 a couple times and you just, uh, oh, yeah, DeRocher, what a good guy. Uh, so, yeah. I, I mean, yeah, every, everyone, it's just, as you said, that, that baked in kind of racism at the time and stuff. Uh, but honestly, and then he was murdered. Like, gee, like yeah, by just, a police officer. Yeah. Like, that's, when I when I heard about him, I don't know where I heard about it, but I was just like, this is one, and I will actually have to say that that uh, my fiance Angela, was really pushing me. Uh, she's like, you, you've done, you know, black players and, and American players and Jewish players, but you need to, you need to really start bringing in some Spanish players and stuff into the yeah. podcast. So, yeah. I think this is a great place to start. And it I, is a great place to start. Wow, what a fucking story. Yeah, man. All right. Yeah, it's it's insane. I mean, we talk. You don't think about the history of 
of Puerto Rican baseball because it just like you know it's not necessarily on the top of mind. But not only the fact that he was the first Puerto Rican to play in the majors, he was also the first Puerto Rican umpire too. Yeah, right. So you're talking about a trailblazer in so many different ways that found an unfortunate end to his life because he happened to be driving a Buick in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. He had a nice car. Yeah. 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 He was like literally not even 40 yet. So it's just so sad that, that he died so young and we probably would, you know, more people would know his name. Like in Puerto Rico, you go like people know his name. I'm, I'm sure if you go to, you know, many people, but, but you know, us Canadian white dudes, like I hadn't heard about him if not for this podcast. Mm-hmm. Right. Like it's, I don't know. This is why we do what we do and try to try to learn more about the sport we love. And yeah. Yeah. Well, you did a great job. Thank this you. Week and, uh, yeah, Matt, I just want to say uh, before we wrap up here, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, it's been great to have you for these two episodes. And uh, Yeah, yeah, all the best, Matt. Where, where can people find you? It, it's, firstly, it's been a lot of fun. Um, we we got to do this again because I, I had a blast <laughs> doing this. This was awesome. Um, you can check me out at MattyMar89 uh, on Twitter, sportsnet.ca if you're interested in any fantasy football stuff. And uh, if you turn on your radio on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and you happen to hear me, uh, I'll be happy to hear from you to say that I did an average at best job. Oh, <laughs> you did an amazing job. And yeah. we, we look forward to, to, as I say, you and Steve Dangle's hockey hour in 2040. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> uh, it'll be awesome. Um, yeah, so check us out on Twitter at Doing Baseball, Instagram at Doing Dot Baseball. Give us a review. Uh, tell your friends. Thanks so much, Matt. Uh, well, until thanks, next Maddie. time. Um, no, you're Sean. I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. Yeah. We're doing baseball. (laughs) Okay, bye. Bye. (laughs)